Well, good morning and welcome back to our series called Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. Today is a continuation of last week's sermon answering the question, Are Science and Christianity Incompatible? The quick answer to this question is simply no. Science and Christianity are not incompatible, not in the slightest. I spent a lot of time last week discussing the difference between science and naturalism, which is a philosophical commitment to the idea that everything can be explained by science. But as I pointed out, science is not a philosophical commitment, nor is science even a majority opinion. As soon as you say something like, most scientists believe, you are no longer talking about science. And so I explained that science cannot, by definition, presuppose naturalism or the belief that nothing supernatural exists or caused anything. This means that our battle is not with science, but with naturalism and naturalism's only potential mechanism, which I described as macroevolutionism, or the idea that all things evolved from one thing, aka amoeba to man evolution. To sum up, while biblical Christianity is incompatible with naturalistic evolutionism, that does not make Christianity incompatible with science. One of the verses of Scripture I pointed to last week is this, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Another passage I shared was this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish heart was darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. After sharing these verses, I started getting into the issue of what happens when we begin to accept naturalistic theories masquerading as science rather than trusting what the Bible tells us about creation. And in that warning, I also pointed you back to the second question we answered in this series, in which I made the case that the Bible is ultimately from God, who breathed His words through human authors who also wrote down exactly what God wanted us to hear. If this is true, and it is, then we should always trust unchanging Scripture over man's latest theories. Why? Because God knows more than we do, infinitely more, and He was there. Unfortunately, even many Christians seem to think otherwise. So again, last week we covered the first of three areas of discussion, which was to understand macro, this is number one in your notes, macro versus micro evolution. Once more, let me point out that biblical creationists have no issue with the concept of natural selection within a kind. This is what I'm calling microevolution. We can clearly see a great deal of variation that has happened through mutation within the kinds which God originally made. As I said, the fossil record shows a forest of life, diversifying over time. But what it does not show us is a single tree of life as if one kind became other kinds, or as if all the kinds could be placed within the same ancestral tree. 
Science can prove the link between the variations within each kind, but science has not come close to proving there are links between all the different kinds of life. Quite the opposite. Far from the definition of science, macroevolutionism is, frankly, unscientific. If you think that's overstated, listen to last week's message for more about the actual fossil record and the fact that mutation cannot possibly explain the diversity of life because no mutation has ever added anything to, to the gene code. Look back to last week for that. Now, as I wrap up this review, move on to where this message is really going, let me just point out that if you are trying to take the supernatural out of the existence of things, you are simply not believing what God has said. If you think macroevolution is what happened, or that amoeba to man evolution might simply be the way God decided to do things, well, not only are you believing in something unsupported by scientific evidence, but perhaps worse, you're simply not believing the Bible. The Bible clearly describes a sudden and supernatural creation wherein God literally spoke things into existence from out of nothing. For example, the Bible says, faith convinces us that God created the world through His Word. This means what can be seen was made by something that could not be seen. Can you honestly tell me that verse somehow fits within the view that God used macroevolution to bring everything into existence over millions or billions of years? Was God up there coaxing that wolf to wander back into the ocean to become a dolphin? That is what they think, by the way. That's how mammals got back in the ocean from the wolf. Is, is, is that God creating things through his word? Is that God creating each kind to reproduce according to its kind as we see in Genesis? Or is that people believing other people instead of believing God? At any rate, this is where we left off last week. And now let's get into the second larger area of discussion, which is the battle, again, not between Christianity and science, but between old earth versus young earth thinking. Now, I want to first say that there are good, strong Christians who believe the earth is older than I do. I've said under respected Bible believers, uh, professors who believe the earth is perhaps millions of years old. They have not fallen from grace and I am not judging them. So hear me say that you don't have to agree with me on this to be my friend or to be a part of this church, okay? I hope we can agree on the gospel, but we don't need to agree on this. Lots of people disagree with me on this and they have every right in the world to be wrong. So, <laughs> here I go. This pastor actually believes that the earth is likely less than 10,000 years old. Best we can tell, the genealogies of Scripture give us about 6,000 years of history. That's between now and the creation of Adam and Eve. We get this from adding up all the ages and tracing the timeline of human life back through those good old boring genealogies. Now, I'm not dogmatic about 6,000 years since there are some ways to interpret the genealogies a bit differently. But regardless, even if I allow that we could find, say, 30,000 years in the creation account, please understand that you just can't find the billions of years necessary for large-scale evolutionism to be true anywhere in the Bible. Now, I personally believe the Bible is completely true, having been revealed to us from God. And in the Bible, it's almost impossible to see an earth that is more than 10,000 years old. I realize that sounds incredibly radical. I mean, maybe before this moment you thought I was a pretty smart dude, but now you're not so sure. 
Well, if you're a believer, ask yourself why my belief in a younger earth sounds so radical when if you just look at Scripture, which presumably you believe is truth from God, you too would see only a few thousand years of history since creation because a few thousand years is simply all that's there. In fact, this is what Orthodox Christianity has always believed, and it's what the Jews before us understood to be true as well. Our spiritual forefathers and foremothers <laughs> believed Scripture was a reliable history from the beginning, including dates, ages, and genealogies. As a result, they thought the earth was about 6,000 years old. That's what Christians and Jews believed for millennia, right up until the last few decades when so many of us are abandoning this understanding. And yes, I've seen the books. I've read as much of them as I could stand. I know that some of you have read them are being pulled in that direction. So, in many Christians accepting these latest supposedly Christian theories, which some have called theistic evolutionism, did we get smarter or dumber? I don't know, but I guess we'll all find out together someday. And if I'm wrong, at least I'll be able to stand on the fact that I just went ahead and believed what God had said. Now, I do realize this is almost impossible for most modern people, particularly those who have grown up in our education systems and who have watched hundreds of nature shows on television, to believe in a young earth today. I am losing credibility with some of you as I speak. I am aware of what decades of indoctrination can do. But as Yoda said, I will say, you must unlearn what you have learned. <laughs> Honestly, I did not originally believe in a young earth myself. Nope, I questioned it. Even through college and seminary Bible classes at conservative Baptist institutions, I wasn't sure about a literal six-day creation viewpoint. And for a while, I absolutely didn't believe it. Nor did some of my professors, as I mentioned. But at some point, I started really looking into the topic for myself. I thought that surely the six days of creation listed in Scripture were representative of eons of time, probably millions of years. But after studying the issue more thoroughly, I found out something very important. I found out that the only compelling reason to believe in millions or billions of years is in order to defend macroevolutionism, which I have always seen as total bunk. What I hadn't realized is that if you don't believe in amoeba to man evolution, there is simply no need to believe in millions or billions of years. I also found there are plenty of scientific facts that actually point to a young earth, but I'd never heard those scientific facts because, again, the current majority and ruling class of mainstream science is controlled by the assumption of naturalism. What I'm saying is that I found out that old earth thinking isn't mostly driven by scientific fact, but by the necessities of naturalistic evolutionism, which, again, is generally driven by a desire to replace God, religion, and especially Christianity, replacing these things with what amounts to an alternative belief system masquerading as science. Now, since I don't have time to make a thorough case for a young and therefore biblically aged earth, I'm going to simply touch on a few interesting issues within this debate. And I do apologize at this point if you hate science. <clears throat> First, let's talk about <clears throat> the dating methods. <clears throat> and for the sake of time, we'll just look at carbon dating because most of the problems with it are exactly the same as those with every other dating method. We just need to understand a few basic facts. C14, carbon-14, is an unstable isotope of the carbon element. It has two more neutrons 
than the more stable isotope known as C12. Understand that C14 loses those two neutrons over time, thereby becoming C12. Scientists have asserted that the rate of decay from C14 to C12 is a constant. Therefore, based on the amount of decay, they can look at an atom of carbon and tell how long it has been in existence, thereby placing a date on wherever that atom of carbon came from. By the way, scientists generally admit that carbon dating can only give potentially accurate dates of up to 60,000 years or so because of the relatively rapid rate of decay of C14. In fact, no dating method gives us billions of years so keep that in mind. Dating methods simply don't attempt that kind of age range. Now, as I told you, I believe the Earth is less than 10,000 years old. So what do I think when I hear on the Discovery Channel or read on a placard at the Grand Canyon that a certain rock structure or fossil or whatever has been carbon dated to 50,000 years old? Well, I simply filter that with what I know about dating methods. They are each and every one based on unverifiable assumptions. Some would call that faith. For instance... There are three major assumptions that must be true for C14 dating to be of any value. First, it's assumed that the ratio of C14 to C12 on this planet long ago reached what scientists call a state of equilibrium. Dr. Willard Libby, the founder of carbon dating, assumed carbon had reached equilibrium. But he admitted that if it hadn't, this dating method would be totally unreliable. Guess what? Scientists have recently discovered that carbon is actually not at the state of equilibrium on this planet. And here's the kicker, Do Dr. Libby himself mathematically demonstrated that it should only take about 30,000 years for the carbon reservoir on Earth to have reached equilibrium. That's why he thought surely carbon was already at equilibrium because he believed in billions of years. But as I said, they have now discovered that carbon has in fact not reached the equilibrium, equilibrium state on Earth. If you're really smart and you've been following all this, then what does that tell you about the age of the Earth? Well, if Libby's science was right as it seems to be, then it means the Earth must not even be 30,000 years old. Dr. Libby's calculations say the Earth must be younger than that because equilibrium has not been reached in the case of carbon, which should have only taken 30,000 years. That, by the way, is science. I love science. Now, there are at least two other major assumptions for carbon dating to have much value as a dating method. First, the Earth's magnetic field must have remained in a, con a constant, and there's evidence it likely has not. Second, the rate of decay of carbon must have always been a constant. Regardless of atmospheric changes, uh, any catastrophic events, such as a global flood. And no one can know. Nobody can know if carbon has always decayed at the same rate or not. Likely not. If at any point carbon decayed much faster, we can get date ranges that do not contradict Scripture. How easily have we found fault with the Word of God? Every single one of the dating methods includes the same types of problems because every dating method is based on similar assumptions. Don't be fooled by statements about AIDS that sound like proven fact but are based on multiple presuppositions. Put more simply, regardless of how emphatically they may state it, scientists don't really know how old most stuff is. And that's the truth. Now, let's talk briefly about the dinosaurs. Yep, I'm going there. Naturalistic evolutionists have used dinosaurs more than any other single thing to indoctrinate us and our children with billions of years thinking. If you state something as fact often enough, people simply believe it. If you don't know that at this point, after COVID, well, well, <laughs> understand this. 
Evolutionists start with billions of years, and then they plug everything in somewhere. They plug in dinosaurs at about 235 million years ago. Obviously, evolutionists don't believe man and dinosaurs lived at the same time, even though there is actually evidence to the contrary, and if the Bible is right, then we must have existed together. What? Yes, the Bible says all of the land animals are created by God on the sixth day of creation week, and that would include dinosaurs. So your next question is, why doesn't the Bible talk about dinosaurs? Actually, many Bible verses potentially refer to dinosaurs. However, modern Bible translations have changed their terms to present-day animals to avoid the controversy, which is really sad. No translation uses the actual word dinosaur because that word wasn't even invented until 1841 when some of the first so-called dinosaur fossils were discovered. By the way, the word dinosaur is Latin for terrible lizard. Are there such things in the Bible? We must look at the original languages and the context of each passage to see what the Bible actually says about these creatures we now refer to as dinosaurs. Let's look at a couple of examples. The Bible says God created, this is Genesis 1:21. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind and God saw that it was good. Some translations have dumbed sea monsters down to sea creatures. One translation even uses the word whales, but that is entirely inaccurate. The Hebrew word for sea monsters used in Genesis 1.21 is tannin, T-A-N-N-I-N. The most literal translation of that Hebrew word is dragon. The Bible literally says that God created the sea dragon. Very likely this refers to large sea-dwelling reptiles, which we would now call dinosaurs. For example, plesiosaurus. There are many other biblical examples of what we now call dinosaurs, but let's just look at one more right now. Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. God said to Job, look at the behemoth which I made along with you. Made along with you? Hmm. And which feeds on grass like an ox, what strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit, his bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. Unfortunately, a few Bible translations have translated the word for behemoth as hippopotamus or elephant. This is a terrible translation. Have you ever seen the tail of an elephant or a hippo? It certainly doesn't sway like a cedar. Nor would it be all that impressive to think of God approaching it with a sword. Clearly, God is describing a monster of an animal first among creation, which is exactly what the original Hebrew word for behemoth means, a giant-sized monster. In fact, this creature sounds like it could be something similar to what scientists now call brachiosaurus. Not only does the Bible mention many dinosaur-like creatures, but other ancient documents and histories do as well. Nearly every ancient culture records stories of creatures that sound very much like what we now call terrible lizards, dinosaurs. Where do they get those ideas? What if large reptiles lived more recently than we're being told by those who hold to a theory requiring billions of years for a timeline? Obviously, most dinosaurs are now extinct and have been for a very long time, but that is true of many animals. And by the way, have you looked at a sturgeon lately? Does that thing look like it's from like recent, that they're still alive? Also, have you noticed that they keep discovering animals that they thought extinct for eons, then they find one. 
still actually in existence somewhere on this planet. Let's not get into Nessie <laughs> or Sasquatch again. Dealt with that last week. But the truth is that there are many animals alive today that could just as easily be called dinosaurs. How is a Komodo dragon not a dinosaur exactly? As for the larger dinosaurs that obviously are no longer here, we can clearly see today that size does not seem to be a good thing in terms of the survival of a species. Seen a blue whale lately? I doubt any of us have ever seen a blue whale. Let's talk next about the so-called ape men. Ape men. Cotton mouth today. I don't know why. I'll get through it. The real reason for billions of years thinking is so that we can try to imagine amoeba to man evolution. But all evolutionists really need to do uh, to, to bend the culture toward naturalism is to convince people that they were once basically apes or ape-like creatures. If you think you've not been brainwashed already on this, you probably need to think again. If you believe in cavemen, in the way textbooks and television programs speak of them, you've already strayed from Scripture. If you think at some point humans got smart and creative enough to use tools and make fire and stop grunting or whatever, like we know, you're not in line with biblical history. If you think man couldn't have been advanced enough to create the pyramids and so it must have been aliens, you missed something in Sunday school. If you think Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon man are historical ancestors or parallel ancestors to humans in the way that evolutionists are presented, you're believing that we evolved to be as we are rather than being created in the image of God, intelligent and able to communicate with Him and each other from the beginning, just as the Bible says. Now, hear this and don't forget it. Scientifically speaking, all that evolutionary anthropologists have are bones. That's all they have. Remember that. All they have are bones, and mostly fossils of bones. The rest of what they produce is artwork based on evolutionary presuppositions. Just take a look at the bones. If you can just get your eyes on the bones instead of the artwork, you'll realize how easily you may have believed what naturalistic evolutionists have theorized about those ancient bones in opposition to what the Bible says is true. All they have are bones and theories. Maybe you think you'd need an expert. I'm not a scientist. I'd need, I'd need an expert. I'd need a scientific expert to interpret the bones. All right, then. According to one expert on human anatomy and physiology, Dr. David Minton, who once served on the faculty um, um, of one of our most pre prestigious institutions, incidentally, uh, the very one that Randy and Paula have a son attending right now. Uh, this dude used to be on staff there, Washington University in St. Louis. According to David Minton, there are three ways to make an ape man. There are three ways to take fossils and try to make the case that man has evolved from earlier, more ape-like forms. Dr. Minton says evolutionists can, one, combine ape, fossils, ape fossil bones with human fossil bones and declare the two to be one individual. The most famous example of this called Piltdown Man, uh, eventually proven to be an elaborate hoax wherein the more human-like skull of the specimen was shown to be from a separate place and only about 500 years old. Or two, evolutionists can emphasize certain human-like characteristics of fossilized ape bones and with imagination upgrade apes to be more human-like. 
The most famous example of this is known commonly as Lucy. The thing to remember is that all of the ways evolutionists present Lucy to be human-like are simply contrived. That's right. The actual fossil found does not prove any link to humanity whatsoever. In fact, the fossil of Lucy has all the distinguishing characteristics of an ape. I've actually seen this demonstrated with a model at the Creation Museum near Cincinnati, Ohio. But just to give you an example, one of the best so-called proofs that Lucy was supposedly not an ape are bipedal footprints they say they found near the fossil. Now, by near, they meant over 1,000 miles away. They say she was bipedal like a human because they found bipedal footprints as far away as from here to L.A. And I don't have time to expound any further on Lucy, but it's the kind of stuff they pull to try to prove their theory. Don't be fooled by artwork. The artwork of those who are unapologetically seeking to convert you to their belief system. Those knowing eyes in the pictures, human-like hands and feet shown in pictures of Lucy are nothing but artwork. You won't see that in the bones, folks. But wait, surely modern-day scientists wouldn't deliberately try to persuade people toward the belief system behind their science. Oh, oh yeah, they would, and they do, because they believe they're right about origins, and they're simply trying to convince others of what they've believed. Me too, me too, just not calling it science and saying it can't be questioned. Now, according to Dr. Minton, the third way evolutionists create so-called ape men out of fossils is to, this is number three, emphasize certain ape-like qualities of fossilized human bones and with imagination downgrade humans to be more ape-like. Here we're talking about Cro-Magnon man, Neanderthal man, similar so-called subspecies supposedly preceding or running, running congruent to either versions of ourselves. In these cases, the bottom line is that there is no real evidence to show that these fossils were not simply localized ethnicities of men and women. Oh, surely not. Yes, it's true. Naturalistic evolutionists will take piles of fossilized human bones and highlight every characteristic which is supposedly inferior to modern man, presenting those characteristics as if this means they were a transitional form on the way to modern man. But there's one major problem with this effort. It turns out that every trait they highlight in these so-called transitional forms is observable in living humans somewhere on the planet today. Whatever traits they're calling inferior, which might be something as simple as a different kind of a forehead, whatever traits they're calling inferior or transitional can be found in human specimens somewhere on the earth today. In some cases, they'll find these characteristics in the bones of tribal people, such as the Aborigines of Australia. They'll find these characteristics in people who died with severe arthritis or rickets or other bone conditions. Regardless, they can find these supposedly inferior characteristics somewhere in modern mankind, which means finding them in older bones proves absolutely nothing. And remember, we have no problem with variations happening within the species. Natural selection and adaptation happens, especially where an ethnicity is found to be in isolation. But that's no issue for a biblical worldview at all. Remember this, if nothing else, all they have are bones. 
They have bones and presuppositions. Ask yourself, how do they know? How do they know? How do they know that their eyeballs look like that? How do they know their hair looked like that if all they have are bones? They don't. They absolutely do not know what these specimens look like on the outside. All they have are bones. Personally, based on what they've dug up so far, I'll continue to believe my family tree does not include monkeys or ape-like creatures or ducks or amoebas, for that matter. I'll move on with a quote from a famous professor of anthropology, Dr. David Pilbeam, an ardent evolutionist himself, though he admitted, perhaps generations of students of human evolution, including myself, have been flailing about in the dark that our database is too sparse, too slippery for it to be able to mold our theories. Rather, the theories are more statements about us and ideology than about the past. Paleoanthropology reveals more about how humans view themselves than it does about how humans came about but that is heresy. At least some scientists are still honest enough to admit that what they have been presenting as scientific fact is not particularly scientific. Next, let's briefly talk about the origins of old earth theory. Where did the relatively new idea that the earth is billions of years old come from? Think about it. Did science observe an earth that is billions of years old and then conceive of the theory of evolution? Or did science conceive of the theory of evolution and then determine how old the earth must be in order for evolution to be possible? Well, it's absolutely the latter, which is why they keep needing to add a few million years. Darwin never imagined billions of years, folks. In fact, can anyone really Imagine billions of years. Isn't billions of years just kind of like the God factor or the magic wand of evolutionism? How in the world can anyone even fathom billions of years? Just try it. Seriously, some people question established historical facts from 100 years ago. How about 1,000 years ago? We don't know much about 1,000 years ago, really. Now go back to the beginning of recorded history a few thousand years ago, and still, you've not even scratched the surface of one million years. And they say, oh, the dinosaurs were 250 million years ago. And we're like, oh, okay, sure. It goes kind of like this. We now know the earth has to be billions of years old because that's how long it would have taken for everything to evolve. That's called circular reasoning. And we all employ it sometimes. But at the least, this is not part of any scientific method. And see, if you believe God created the heavens and the earth supernaturally, you simply don't need billions of years. After all, there may be rocks that were created recently by a volcano, right? But what about the original rocks that eventually made the volcano? Or the one before that? How long ago did God need to make these rocks out of nothing? Oh, maybe he used sand and water first. Okay. How long did it take God to make the sand and the water? See what I'm saying? If you're not a naturalist, you simply don't need billions of years. Why? Because at some point, God made something out of nothing. And we don't need to try to figure out how old it is because it was created out of nothing. Look, if it was supernaturally created, does it even make sense to try to decide how old it is? How would we even 
have a framework for discussing how old something is if it was created by someone outside of time and space. But wait, this is supposed to be about whether or not science and Christianity are incompatible. So, is there any actual science that points to a potentially younger Earth? Well, according to one group of creation scientists, 90% of all the physical processes observable in nature are evidenced from, for a, are evidence for a young earth. Are they biased? Of course they are. But so are naturalistic evolutionists. So even if that percentage is too high, the point is absolutely true that there is a ton of scientific evidence that points toward a younger earth. Many evidences point to an earth under 10,000 years old. The decay of Saturn's rings, the amount of sodium in the oceans, our current population numbers, coral reef growth, uranium in the sea, Earth's magnetic field, there are hundreds of observable physical facts that provide scientific evidence for a younger Earth. Bottom line, evolutionists can no more prove their theories about an old Earth than they can prove their theories about the origins of life. As I said, one theory presupposes the other. If the Earth is not billions of years old, then evolutionism can't be true. And they know that, so they spend a lot of time trying to prove, or at least state emphatically until nobody questions it, that the earth is billions of years old. But wait, if evolutionism isn't true in the first place, then the earth need not be billions of years old. My point is that if you're not convinced about one, there's no need to be convinced about the other. After all, if it, were super, if it was supernatural at some point, do you believe in a supernatural creation at all? If it was supernatural at some point, then long periods of time were simply not needed. Our problem is we're trying to figure out how long it might take for something to come into existence by itself, when in fact that is not what happened. Don't be fooled by naturalism masquerading as science. Lastly, in regard to the old or young earth debate, let's talk about some theological implications. The theological implications of billions of years thinking are catastrophic. By that I mean that old earth thinking is murder on what we believe as Christians, not only because it calls into question the historical reliability of Scripture, but also because the gospel of Jesus Christ ceases to make as much sense if the earth is billions of years old. The Bible says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Wait, was this before or after Neanderthal man? Dude, there's no such thing as Neanderthal man, not in the way you've heard it. But what about the dating methods? They're not accurate because they're based on assumptive constants that's not been constant. See, according to Scripture, any human bones they find must have come after Adam. Do you know why? Because before Adam, people didn't die. In fact, before Adam, there weren't any people. Remember? What have you believed? According to the Bible, death was not part of God's original design. Death came to this planet because of sin. Death did not come before sin. The Bible says this place was a paradise before sin. That means nothing died, nothing suffered. Listen, there were no fossils before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, because nothing died before that. Remember? Death was not God's fault, but rather it was the result of rebellion against Him. When you place millions of years of dead fossils before Adam and Eve, you no longer believe sin brought death. 
You undermine the reason for the atonement of Christ by shedding blood as a man, and you're left with a God who created an imperfect world full of suffering and dying. If that were true, what would it tell you about God? I believe all the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but did you know that the Ten Commandments were actually written down by the finger of God? Remember that? The Bible says God actually wrote on those stone tablets himself. And do you know what phrase was included by the finger of God on those tablets? In six days. God himself actually wrote that on the tablets while he was explaining the reason for the seven-day week and the Sabbath day of rest, the fourth commandment. He wrote with his own hand that the earth was created in six days. I believe God meant what he wrote. If I find out I was wrong when I get to heaven, no big deal. But if it's all the same to you, I'm going to stand firmly upon the side of the Word of God, no matter what anyone else says. I want to sum up briefly with one final area of thought. I hope you have already seen that this issue of origins is not science versus Christianity, but rather is actually science versus science. The point is that you don't have to fight a war against science and embrace mythology to be a Christian. Let the scientists fight amongst themselves. Trust me, they don't all agree. And this is true more and more. So listen, you don't have to reject science to be a Christian. But you really should reject naturalistic evolutionism. Just like some scientists do. There's plenty of science to support the biblical point of view on our origins. You just might have to look a little harder to find it. Why? Because the field of science is currently under the majority control of powerful secular humanists who have set themselves up against God. When it comes to the field of science, naturalists are currently in control and in power, but there are still plenty of rebels and revolutionaries to be found, even brilliant scientists who do not bow to the current regime. If you want an example, check out Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe, who is certainly not a creationist, and yet he utterly destroys what I've been calling macroevolutionism on a scientific basis. I wouldn't be at all surprised if someday evolutionism as we know it is rejected by science. True science remains true. But philosophies, like naturalism, run in cycles. Do you know that before the naturalists came to power, Christianity found great allies among scientists? Bible-believing Christians like Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Bray, Descartes, Boyle, Newton, Pascal, Joule, Lyle, Priestley, Kelvin, Ohm, Ampere, Pasteur, and Mendel, morons, I guess. No. Instead, from their graves, they cry out that science and naturalism are strange bedfellows. I remember so well when my daughter, Tori, was maybe in about first grade, and she asked me one time, Daddy, what is evolution? Trying not to talk over her head, knowing the kind of evolution she had heard about, I said, well, it's, it's basically the belief that everything just kind of got here on its own. If only I could have captured the look on her face in a picture. Bewildered, she said. Why won't people just believe God did it? Why indeed? In fact, the Bible gives us some insight into the answer when it says in 2 Peter 3, 
it is most important for you to understand what will happen in the last days. People will laugh at you. They will live doing the evil things they want to do. They will say, Jesus promised to come again. Where is he? Our fathers have died, but the world continues the way it's been since it was made. But they do not want to remember what happened long ago. By the word of God, heaven was made and the earth was made from water and with water. Then the world was flooded and destroyed with water. And that same word of God is keeping heaven and earth that we now have in order to be destroyed by fire. They are being kept for the judgment day and the destruction of all who are against God. Sobering words. Listen, my friends, before you decide to reject what is clearly taught in God's word or water it down or cut and paste it in order to make it fit with what you're hearing from evolutionists, before you do that, remember this. Scientific theories often change drastically every few decades. The Bible never changes because it is the word of God and Jesus himself said God's word will endure throughout history. Do you believe Jesus spoke the truth? Ask yourself this question, when the end comes, will I be found on the side of the latest theory masquerading as science, or will I be found standing with Jesus on the side of the everlasting Word of God? You can't have it both ways. The choice is yours. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that whatever your spirit is saying right now to somebody's heart, that they would listen. Whatever you're trying to do, that somebody would respond. We think we're so smart. We think it's smarter to believe one thing or another thing. We try to tell you how you're supposed to be. These are all part of the original sin. This is all part of our selfishness, our idolatry. Is there anyone here today that would lay that down and just surrender to Christ as King, as Lord, as God? In your heart, would you respond to him today? Would you say, yes, okay, maybe I don't know everything I thought I knew. I just want to believe you. God's working in your heart if that's your desire. You don't have that desire just of your own accord. It means the Holy Spirit is working on you, which means he cares about you out of billions of people, what's your answer? How would you respond to God who is telling you to lay it down and put your trust in Him and believe what He said? To believe in His Son, to believe Christ spoke for God, that Christ was God, that Christ died on the cross, He rose again, and He's promised you eternal life. And so many verses tell us we can complicate it with our theology, but so many verses tell us it's really all about believing. Would you believe today? Would you put your trust in God and what God has said? It's so clear. That's what it takes. That's all it took for the criminal on the cross. It's all it takes for you. Would you respond to the Holy Spirit with faith? In Jesus Christ, in His Word, in the Gospel, would you just give Him your life today? Will you to let Him come in and change your heart? We call it salvation. Is today the day of salvation for you? If so, I pray you'll let us know so we can celebrate.
Father, for the rest of us, God, help us to get some courage. (laughs) Um, Help us to stop taking it all laying down in the right way, as your word says in 1 Peter 3.15, with gentleness and respect, but to give an answer and to stop just cowering under what's being emphatically said as if it was proven when it isn't. Help us to be strong warriors for Christ. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We know that there's spiritual forces behind all of it. So give us the strength of, uh, to get on our knees more than we talk. But when the time comes to open our mouths and share the truth and help somebody to see that there are still people that believe what God has said a remnant. I pray you'd bring a revival and a spiritual awakening through your remnant. I pray it'd start right here in the Pacific Northwest. What better place to show your power? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.